0: Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Today's guest is Randall Lobb. Randall is a writer, director, producer, and nerdiculturalist. He has recently found success in the world of iconic pop culture documentaries. He takes a grounded and authentic approach to the story of brands that create euphoric recall for fans and also opens up new audiences. His film, Turtle Power, The Definitive History of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, was sold to Paramount and Nickelodeon. He has licensed his doc, The Power of Grey Skull: A Definitive History of He-Man, to Netflix. And recently, he completed The Crystal Calls, making The Dark Crystal for Netflix, and is currently working on a Baywatch documentary. Randall, that is a whole lot of stuff. Welcome to the show. We're really excited to uh, have you. That's very kind of you. You want to
1: talk to me today. I've had better Sundays, honestly. The last two have been interesting. This one's nicer because I'm at home. I was one of those people driving across the country trying to get back to my country before whatever was going to happen, happened. So they let Canadians back in anyway, so we're all good there. But yeah, it was a tumultuous drive last Sunday, which was part of my confusion in our back and forth as well.
0: So you already beat me to my first question, which is always, where are you in the world right now? but often these days the answer to that is going to be at home where is home for you in canada
1: i live in a small town 3 hours west of toronto in ontario i live in a rural environment right on if you know anything about the great lakes and detroit and chicago and all of that i'm directly across lake huron from about the midpoint of upper peninsula michigan i live in a small town there and uh, was born and raised in this area. Never thought I would live here. Ended up moving back because, you know, as technology changed and I had an unusual incident in my life, which I'm happy to talk about, it uh, caused me to come back. And luckily I was on the internet early enough that I saw that it was going to be opportune for people like me to do different things than, You know, go to New York, go to Toronto, go to Los Angeles, go to Vancouver, which is, when I went to film school, that's, that was the plan, obviously.
0: Before we get into the process of what you do, can you tell us a little bit about your origin story? Did you always want to be a documentary filmmaker? Tell us about that and tell us about the career mm-hmm. trajectory leading up to this point.
1: So I fell into this by accident. There's a thing that I, I've said this before in other podcasts or interviews, and so I won't belabor it. People who are curious could potentially find it, but I will say there's something about it that, you know, your focus is different. Sometimes maybe I would be on a, a He Man podcast or something. I would tell a version of this story and they would gloss over this part, but you might find this part more interesting because you're very process interested, as I understand. I was born in the 60s. I'm, I'm an old man, not super old, but I was born in the, the late 60s in this small town nearby here. And the reason I start there is because it's very important, especially for young people to realize there's a, an unusual group of people in the world. We're Gen X. We're born between 65 and 80. Perhaps you're one. I, I imagine you're much younger. But when we grew up, we sort of had the boomers sitting on top of us. And I'm not a boomer hater. I had my problems with them growing up because, you know, they would be the kind of people to tell you, you like Led Zeppelin, you like the Doors, you like the Beatles, and that's what you get. And we really didn't have, you know, you're a kid in the '70s, you didn't have something that felt like it was yours. You were always not just inundated, but just the water you swam in was boomer culture. That's fine, but that idea that things are not designed necessarily for me. And and I think this is potentially true amongst my generation, but specifically for me, when I saw something that I liked, I maybe didn't even know why I liked it. And I always use this one example. I think I'm a documentary filmmaker now, and I am the way I am by accident. And the accident started when I saw Diamond Dogs, the David Bowie album. I don't know if you can see the cover of that album in your mind's eye. David Bowie is in makeup and he's a dog and i saw that at my friend's house and i was in grade four and it just i don't even know how to describe it it did something to my brain i thought what is this what is this is this a man is this a an album is it a story is it like i just didn't know what it was and i was fascinated by it and around the same time it happened with kiss and the album dress to kill if you know that album cover and these people if they were people were From another planet to me. And so I began to try and figure out, you know, who was David Bowie? What does it mean? And so an early argument I had, somebody said, it's Bowie. And I said, no, it's Bowie. And somebody else said, it's Bowie. So from the simplest place like that, I started to have this way of trying to cobble together my own David Bowie or my own idea of what this was. And because so few things were, I mean, that sounds crazy now to say so few things were designed for me, but I lived in a small town. If I wanted a Spider-Man comic book, it was really hard to get. And so I treasured every thing of pop culture that I had. And I still have all of those things. The first Spider-Man comic I had, it's damaged, but it's beside me right now. The first Conan the barbarian books that I saw in a used bookstore where I would go to buy candy, I saw the cover. I saw that Frazetta painting, and I had to have it. And so I was that kid. I was collecting James Bond books. I didn't even want to read them. I just wanted to have them and know about them and think about them. And and by the way, I did read many of these things, but some of the things I just wanted. James Bond is a movie. Oh, James Bond is a book. Who's Ian Fleming? What does that mean? He was in England. He wrote in Jamaica. And I just started to build this way of patching together connections between what would appear to be disparate pieces of information. And I was literally creating my own world. And I know this sounds, A, obvious, and B, um, super reductive, but that's literally in a small town, you know, in the 70s, you're a bored kid, which I think is good for kids. It's good to be bored. You begin to generate your own narrative about everything. And I really leaned into that in a way that I don't know that my friends did quite the same way. I know they did their version of it, but I went in hard. I cared about Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. And I knew who they were and I didn't know anything about them, couldn't find anything about them, but I knew I knew that Herb Trimpy is the guy that has his name under Wolverine and Hulk Wayne eighty one. And again, no context. I'm building my own context. So as I got older and these fascinations uh, became sort of like just baseline for my behavior. I am probably a weird little kid. I have a certain kind of brain. It's obvious those of us who are driven to the arts are there by virtue of birth. Like it's not a, I should say, for me, it's not a decision. I didn't think, oh, I'm in the arts. I, it would never have occurred to me. I thought, honestly, when I was a little kid, I would be a comedian. I'll be Steve Martin. I'll be George Carlin. Peach and Sean. Like I just knew all of that stuff, Monty Python, and memorized everything about it and had the facility to be able to do that. And that's maybe annoying to other people, but you become entertaining to other people. And so you begin to see the attachment points where your narrative, your little generated weirdness, if you want to call it that, could have a handle for a group of people. So if you had interviewed five people that knew me and elementary school or high school, they would say, I was that guy. That everybody knew he's gonna leave this town. He's chasing something bigger than himself, bigger than this town. Doesn't mean it's real, doesn't mean he has the talent, doesn't mean anything, but he's chasing something and he's looking for it. So you could just look at all the trends and all the things that were happening in the mid and late seventies. I mean, I did not like disco, but I knew about it. I did not really like punk, but I found the Sex Pistols fascinating and it just blossomed me into a kind of person that when I saw, you know, a movie that really hit me, everybody saw the same movie in 1977. It was like revolutionary. I thought, oh, my God, Star Wars. I get it. And crazy enough, the next year, I believe, or within two years, uh, it was Apocalypse Now. And that hit me a lot harder. So right around then, I kind of changed and i began to look more at the historical context of the things that i liked i don't want to throw short shrift to elton john that elton john's greatest hits album same thing i mean i I just didn't know anything about these people and they were so fanciful so i mean i don't say this lightly and i'm not trying to be a dick i need to find somebody who's like me to help me do the stuff that i do and the guys that i work with they're brilliant at what they do And they might be able to Venn diagram over into what I do, but there's something that I'm able to do that, you know, our workflow requires. And I don't know if other people quite do it the way I do. And we've come to rely sort of on that. Again, I don't have a self-delusion of grandeur. I don't think I'm amazing. I know that I'm unusual and it's just fleek. That I fell into film school in 1984, and it was film school or truck driver. So <laughs> that tells you a little bit about where I was at that time.
0: Before we get into it, we frame our episodes around different themes. In this case, we've never interviewed a documentarian, documentary storyteller. So I'd love to make that the theme of the episode. Are you cool to uh, school us on all that? Uh, I can give you my opinion. All right. So the first point we'll start with is where you come up with an idea. So using maybe Ninja Turtles as an example, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, where did you ever come up with the idea that you wanted to make a documentary about that? And was it commissioned? Did you have the idea and then pitch it? Tell us kind of how that all came about.
1: Right. So I use a word in our filmmaking called emerging. I'm always looking for the emergent structure or the emergent, I don't want to say property. Something has to happen. There has to be a critical mass. There has to be an alignment for me personally to be pulled into something. Uh, because of the rat on a wheel way my brain works, I would never have decided we're going to do a documentary on the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I remember the comic coming out. I believe it was 86. I'm probably going to get the date wrong now after all these years. But I remember the comic coming out I saw it it, and I discarded it immediately I immediately saw its antecedents uh, precedents I guess maybe getting my words wrong Frank Miller I saw how Frank Miller led to the turtles and I said to the guy at the comic shop this will never work turns out I'm a bad uh, fortune teller but we were working on NGO stuff really dark social uh, engagement sort of you know, landmines, Canadian landmines, Cambodian landmine decommissioning, all these kinds of things. And we fell into that by fluke. My day job was I was a high school teacher, head of the English department. And I was a very good teacher and I was good at teaching things like Shakespeare. And so I sort of had a maybe an academic or a little bit didactic approach to things that I was doing. And a young DP that we worked with, very young, Maybe 22. He said, We should do a documentary on the turtles. And in the moment that I said no, my business partner, who does all our posts, Mark Hussey, he said yes. And then I went, Yes. And so <laughs> Isaac Elliott Fisher, the DP, he was born in 85, I believe. And he's the kind of kid who grew up seeing all this stuff, not having access to it, similar to me, but he wanted it. He wanted to own it, have it. So to him, Turtles was a thing that he had always tried to get and couldn't. And so he's saying to me in that moment and to Mark Hussey, my partner, listen, why don't we do a documentary using the principles that you were talking about, which the principles I was talking about was using the internet, the commodification of technology to the masses, the ability to build audience using technology, and this ability to parlay disparate skills. You know, documentary makes sense to do that. It's difficult for us to make a horror movie um at the level that we all feel satisfied with, but we can take those principles that we have and the skills we have and tell a story where the material does not all have to be generated by us either monetarily or, you know, when you're writing, and I'm assuming you're a writer, you know how hard it is to get out of your own way and feel satisfied with what you're writing. So you're always afraid Do I commit, do I remortgage my house for this movie? Is this the one I believe in? Whereas a documentary, I felt like as we begin that process, like we had been doing for these NGOs, we can see something happening and we can shoot it and show it. And there's a built-in audience. We don't have to generate an audience from zero. So I'll honestly tell you, I came into this as a proof and concept, into the Turtles. I was not a fan. I didn't know much about the Turtles other than what I shared with you. And so when he said that and we went in that direction, we were looking at it very much as an internet based uh, structure. 2008 is when this happened. We saw how we could use the internet to touch an audience. And again, I had this background of building handles to make things palatable, particularly to millennials who had, I had been teaching. And this idea that we could sort of highlight the most important elements and turn it into a story that would be entertaining and fun, and we didn't have to have all the pieces. So we started the doc by communicating with Gary Richardson, who was at the time running Mirage with Peter Laird. Uh, Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird had separated their partnership years before. And I spoke with Gary Richardson on the phone. I did not know at the time that they were in negotiations with Viacom to sell the entirety of the franchise and gary did so gary said to me in effect i don't think i can stop you from making it and i said i don't want to make this against you i would love to make it with you he said i'm not going to help you i can't help you he thought probably i was asking for money i said i want to make this documentary i don't want to tell a bad story i want people to see it and like it and think about why they love the turtles and what's interesting about it and just sort of go underneath I told him I was a teacher, I told him how I approached it, I told him I wouldn't focus on what I see as the reality TV elements or, or structures inside that story, and he was satisfied by that, and then when we met Kevin, and um, Isaac met him at a convention in New York, at New York Comic Con, and then he met Peter, and we hit it off with both of them, and they trusted us with their archives, and we began... Shooting immediately in March of 2009. And you're going to find this crazy, but our first shoot, potentially uh, within our first two or three, was Brian Henson. And once you get Brian Henson, I mean, the Henson family is known to be very careful with their legacy, very careful with their intellectual property, very careful in general for any number of reasons we speculate, but also they're very smart. And so Brian agreed to our shot. So we went down to Los Angeles. I went during March break as a high school teacher. We had arranged with Kevin Eastman to stay in an, a house that he had for sale up at Summit and Pinnacle in the Hollywood Hills in the same you know gated community where Brittany lived and Gwen Stefani lived and she was with Gavin Rossdale at a time. And I don't even know what other celebrities were up there. And he said, you could stay here. There's no furniture. So we camped in that house. We hosted the first reunion of the voice cast from the Fred Wolf series, the animated series. They came to this abandoned house. I remember particularly um, James coming in and uh, James Avery coming in. And, you know, he's a a big man. He's got a very sonorous voice. And he goes, I hope you're not a serial killer. (laughs) And I said, well, I have donuts. And he laughed. And came in the house and there was Rob Paulson and, you know, the whole crew. We, we missed a few, but quite a few of the voice actors came and having the voice actors and having Brian Henson was the first of this idea that I had called platforming. So we'll like a platform game. We'll always build a platform and then use that one to jump to the next platform and then build the platform. So we just created our process, this, which is now our. Definitive film process through this emergence of reacting to the situation that came through over time. So, and that sounds vague, but I'll be specific. So, once you get this kind of commitment from the creators, from a very well respected person in the industry, Brian Henson, from the insiders that the fans care about, the voice actors, we could buy, not buy, we could elicit constituency from fans. Then they cared about what we were doing. And they were looking at us. They were suspicious, like all those fans are, but they cared. And when we had their attention, I harken back to Kevin Kelly's Thousand true Fans thesis from, I guess it was 2006 or something. But the idea being, if you have a thousand true fans, you can build a business. So we looked at how to sort of generate material that we could put out in a short structure. So it'd be a YouTube video. We called it Chasing Turtles and circulated among fan groups, amongst fan groups, fans would see it and care and say, how did you get Rob Paulson? What are you doing here? Why do you have Renee Jacobs or whatever? And we just had this little kind of face-to-face structure with them. They would go to an event. We would be with Kevin. He was friendly with us. He's friendly with everyone. We did get to be friends with him, but at first I assumed he was just being kind to us because he's that guy. But the fans would see us with Kevin, and Kevin would have his arm around us. He'd say, I love these guys. And then they would buy in. 2009 was also the year that Viacom bought the turtles. And then a giant corporation came in and it got much more complicated. And my education went in the making of documentaries. And the reason why I I'd say IP I'd exploiter and brand talker and all of those things like sounds silly. I had to learn how to deal with Nickelodeon and Paramount. And at the time, Playmates Toys. And all these companies that were around Viacom and tied to Viacom and really take a strategic approach to fitting in without getting kicked out, without getting sued. You know what I mean? Like buying sort of, again, not buying, building a way for them to trust us and care about what we did. All of this reached a zenith. Zenith? Apogee? (laughs) Depends. A low point and a high point at the same time. Harvey Weinstein now a cultural wreck and well-earned and deserved he had a guy working with him i won't say that person's name i don't know if it's my place but this guy reached out to me and said you know harvey weinstein would buy a documentary about the teenage mutant ninja turtles to fuck brad gray i don't know if that's true but that's that's what he said to me he said brad gray who was the time was running paramount Um, had the whole franchise and he said harvey would buy your documentary just to draft on the activity that was around that michael bay movie and he would probably put it out just as a stick in the eye i don't know if that's true i don't know if that guy was kidding but i ended up in 2013 after we had shot so much footage and had so much material and we had done so many of our proof points of how to make a doc like putting out the small material up front to elicit the fan interest And then, you know, reaching out to the larger interests, the corporations, showing them some of our work, and honestly, not slapping our own backs, blowing their minds because my partners are brilliant, and they're so skilled at what they do. Our material looked excellent, and you could tell that the people inside Viacom did not know the franchise with which they were working. Didn't mean the Nickelodeon people didn't. I think they were largely fans, but the people at Viacom in corporate didn't know a lot of the people at paramount didn't know and they looked at some of our material as useful even to get people up to speed you know here's what the turtles are here's what they mean so i met with this guy at harvey's office the week that harvey was in la fighting with warner brothers about the butler you can't use the title the butler you have to call it you know whatever they ended up calling that movie i missed my harvey meeting but the guy that i met with said to me you know. You could probably sell this to Harvey, but I would bet you that Paramount wouldn't want him to get it. You should go back to Paramount if you can. I reached out to Paramount, and sure enough, over time, we ended up selling it to them by convincing them that we understood, A, the audience for the Turtles, B, the Turtles, C, the handles or the attachment points that were of value, and we could isolate, tease them out of the franchise and raise them up so that people would really attach to them and use them. And I generated a little, I don't know what you'd call it, a manifesto or a series of kind of benchmarks. We can do this. We can do this. We can do this in order and sent them into to people in marketing at Paramount. And I think they felt like, I'm speculating. No one ever told me this, but I think they felt like, oh shit, this guy, he gets it and he knows the franchise. We should take some of this material, like utilize it around that time, Michael Bay goes to the Nickelodeon upfronts in New York, I believe that same spring, 13. And he says, the turtles are aliens. And the fans go crazy. So we immediately released some material. And Latino Film Review, I believe, and some other sites saw what we put out. And they said, in effect, or the the messaging was, these guys have the real turtles. So my material that i sent to paramount was we have the history we own it right now we don't need to own it you can own it by the dog and they did and when they bought it this is kind of interesting as well what they didn't maybe like or didn't realize or maybe i'm congratulating myself I, I don't know this seemed to be apparent in retrospect they realized they could take advantage of our knowledge of the turtles and our contact with the fans and people within the community in a way that was not unlike a brand manager so i'll give you an example when you make a documentary about an ip and you go deep and long like we do we call it a definitive deep dive we generate connections between what are often kind of barely connected or maybe improperly connected groups of stakeholders the example might be a toy company is trying to get information from a broadcaster like the playmates and a nickelodeon they might disclose material or ideas or thinking to us that they don't necessarily openly disclose to each other. That puts us in an interesting strategic position. I'm a fiendishly strategic person. I'm not dumb. I want to make money. I want to make movies. I know I'm not going to get rich doing this, but I know that if I can put myself in service to these stakeholders and interest groups in a strategic and thoughtful way, I'm acting as a supplement to brand management and sort of the exercising of strategy across the entirety of the IP. And I don't know that companies were doing that in 2012, 13 in quite the same way, certainly not in nine. Remember when Iron Man came out in nine, I don't think Disney was prepared for what happened. And Feige was a genius who saw, oh, how this works together. I was like a little stupid Canadian guy Trying to do the same thing in my own way with our partners, we were trying to follow this path as well. without really understanding all the parts. It's in retrospect, all this becomes much more clear. But when that turtle dot came out, they positioned it right around Michael Bay's film. and then I became sort of a de facto spokesperson for the fan or historical turtle community. you want to call it the real turtles or whatever. And so people would say, I did all these pressers or phoners, and they would be like, do you like the new movie? Have you seen the new movie? Does it suck? What do you think? Because they assume <laughs> I'm a fan of the originals, a very deep fan and committed, and they're waiting for me to bag on the new movie so they can go, see, it sucks. And I, would, I hadn't seen it. I was not shared anything. Paramount didn't even want to, like we weren't allowed to shoot any of the behind the scenes. I don't think Platinum Dunes really cared that we were involved and in. I don't think they saw how we could be, in my actual words, I, on the pitch, we could be a force multiplier, what I called it. But I don't think they really, you know, why by the way, why would they trust me? Who I? So I get their point of view. I'm not denigrating it. But that idea, it seemed to catch with some people. And so I did all these phoners and pressers, and I did a, a talk at Comic-Con 2014 and Canada Fan Expo in Toronto. And Paramount got behind those and blew a little fire in, or oxygen into the fire. And what I basically said was, listen, everybody gets their own turtles and everybody can see things that they like. You don't have to know that it's the same old turtles. And I just sort of created a counter narrative and tried to assuage fan fear. I don't know that it helped, but I think Paramount appreciated it. With this giant story I just told you, I was very... Cognizant of what was happening throughout the whole thing, never like uh, our biggest fear. We stood on the balcony in March of 2009, and we're looking down at the valley. You know, you're you're looking over it. There's you can see Universal, and you can see Olive Street, and all that stretching out to the mountains. And we said, you know, we'll probably never get to do this again. This is as good as it gets. But I said, fuck it, I'm going to try everything I can to reproduce. Whatever we do to get this movie out, we have to try and do it again. So literally the day that I did this talk at Canada Fan Expo, and I think we did a screening that same day of the doc um, in Toronto, I was on the phone with our lawyer, and our lawyer was Peter Laird's lawyer. And he kindly agreed to help us early on in the doc. He said to me, Fred Fierce is his name, a great, great man, good guy. He said, is there anything you would do next? And he was just saying it as a matter of course, like chit-chat. We're at the end of this crazy journey. What would you do next? And I said, well, I got to tell you, I've always loved Conan the Barbarian. And he goes dead quiet. Now I'll admit something here. I had had one meeting in his office. In his office, he had all this Conan stuff, keys and knickknacks And I looked around and thought, there's no way a lawyer like him the age that he is would be randomly having all this conan shit in his office he represents the conan franchise conan the barbarian so i said conan the barbarian he said you're not going to believe this. and i said what he said i represent that franchise <sighs> i said are you fucking kidding me and he said i can put you in touch with the guy managing that franchise his name is fred malmberg and his husband jay zetterberg they are running this franchise they're two swedish guys they live in los angeles they're trying to get conan going again blah 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 and i reached out to them and i said i would love to start a documentary on conan the barbarian and fred and jay are both lovely guys super nice they're swedish i'm canadian there's a lot of you know linkage there we feel similarly they opened up that franchise to us and in january of 2015 again On our own money, we're talking mortgage your house, get your credit cards, whatever. And we started the Conan documentary. Now I'm going to shift here. Why did we do Conan? Strategic. Also, I like Conan. Why did we do He-Man? So we're doing this Conan documentary. We're interviewing an artist named William Stout, who worked on the Millius film. He also worked, it turns out, on the He-Man Masters of the Universe film that Gary Goddard did in the 80s late 80s and while we're interviewing bill he mentions that and isaac just says oh i loved that movie you know when he was a kid so hold that so we are also interviewing gary goddard because he worked on um the conan live show at universal which is one of the first of those studio tour live shows with stunts and fire and all kinds of craziness and on his wall was this big he-man poster and Isaac goes, wait, you're that Gary Goddard? And he goes, yeah. And Isaac looks at me and I go, no fucking way. We're not doing it. And he goes, we should do it. We're in the car later. He goes, we should do He-Man. I said, He-Man is a moribund franchise. It's over. I said, if there's something else that tells me we should do it, we're agree." we in Los Angeles. We're going through the Conan archives that are run by Fred Momberg, owned by Fred Momberg. What do we find? We find a link between Conan And He Man at Mattel. Isaac says, Come on, my God. So I lock it in my mind. I say, If we get Conan done, by the way, we're still not done the Conan documentary because of a number of things I'm happy to allude to, but I can't discuss. The He Man documentary is sitting in front of us. And a guy who had seen a filmmaker who who lives near us, who had seen the turtle stock and liked it, uh, he reached out one day to Isaac Elliott Fisher, the TP, and he said, Hey, I'm thinking of doing a He Man documentary. He admits today that he was half-assed trolling us. But when he reached out, Isaac said, shit, he's going to beat us to the punch. We have to hurry and do it. And so we said, maybe we could work with another filmmaker. And that's how we started. And then the same thing happened with a video game called Shenmue. A young Shenmue fan saw Turtles. We know him in the community. He reached out and said, do you think you could do with Shenmue, uh, this cult video game, which I had never heard of? Uh, could you do what you did with turtles for that so we joined into that that's in post right now and that's sort of the thing that happened after turtles came out again i don't like slapping myself in the back but i think a lot of people saw that and thought hey this is better than they thought and so some of the filmmakers who are out in the world who are fans nerd fans they reached out to me and said hey uh how did you do this how did you do that why did you do this why did you do that?" So. We had a few people in that community want to do stuff together or at least it opened up a kind of an opportunity structure for us to look at other other docs and and that's kind of how we got dark crystal which i i can go into in detail if you like and that's how we got baywatch as well
0: we have a lot of writers on this podcast do you like what writers write do you like free stuff well, Audible is offering a free audiobook download for listeners of the Writer Experience podcast, with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. I recently downloaded James Joyce's Ulysses for my commutes into the city, while our producer Harry, who may or may not exist, has been enjoying J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com writerexperience. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash writerexperience for your free audiobook. The Flickering Myth Podcast is a source for all of the weekly entertainment news that we could
2: possibly be bothered to talk about. Tune in every Tuesday for a roundtable discussion featuring a host of Flickering Myth writers and contributors. You can find us on all your favorite podcatchers as well as right here at flickeringmyth.com, part of the Flickering Myth Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Alan Christian. I'm Gerald James. And I'm Lacey Day. And we host the Four Color Film Podcast. What do we do with the Four Color Film Podcast, Gerald? We watch and dissect every comic book-based film. Lacey, do you still like being here? Yeah, it's really great. <laughs> <laughs> you can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify, and wherever else they have Good podcasts, and podcasts like these. (laughs) You sound like a kidnapping (laughs) victim. Also on the Flickering Myth Podcast Network at flickeringmyth.com, along with other great shows. Check us out and check them out, too. Thank you. Hell Zane. Hell Zane.
0: You had mentioned you had at one point the documentary together, pitched it to Paramount. Mm-hmm. Paramount bought it. At what phase in the editing process was it? What point should a documentary be before you're really trying to sell it to a big studio? Once they buy it, is that a finality? Or are they then giving yeah. you funding to then make it bigger and better?
1: I can only tell you what has happened to us. I know that it's been significantly better business for other people. Than it has been for me in the sense that we do so much front loading of work because we're trying to create the no-brainer and it may be that we're foolish so the example would be with the turtle doc i had uh, 225 hours of footage including archives we had 70 interviews we had an enormous pile of material and what we tried to do is show how it could be utilized for marketing so we didn't just show a a dot cut like we didn't go and say here's a done picture buy it or not i always feel like if you do that you run the risk of somebody saying guess what color i'm thinking and you say uh 15 and they go wrong upside down and so there's a structure that I'm afraid of, and maybe this is, again, to my detriment, what I want to say to people who want to buy documentaries is, well, I'm a partner. My VP is a partner, and my business partner, who is the post guy, he's a partner. You tell us what you plan and tell us what you need, and we'll help you get through those deliverables, whatever they are. So I want to say we have a ton of material. We can go this direction or that direction. We have a cut. It's a rough or an assembly. Here's what it looks like. We create structures called process teasers. We might generate three or four process teasers that have different foci. So we might have one that looks at specifically the creators. We might have another that looks at sort of emergent thematic posts. Like I'm really big on theme. So we'll have these theme posts. We might have another one that looks wide to show holy shit, look how many people they interviewed and we might have another one yet that looks like it's a little sexier and more uh, post-production tweak. So it looks, holy shit, this looks great. These guys have production values. And by hoisting these things up, these flags, people see hopefully, ah, that might fit into our needs here. That might fit in there. That's the way I do it now. And it's a lot of work and you don't get paid for that work. So you have to love what you're doing and you have to be driven. The other thing that we do is we are usually cross siloed. So you're probably trying to make inroads with marketing first. You're trying to make inroads with if you're dealing with something that has a tentpole feature, you're trying to deal with feature. And you might be dealing with TV. And you might be dealing with people who are in BA because they're going to have to check and they're like, well, who the fuck is going to pay for this? Uh, is it a marketing thing? And marketing's like, no, 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 no. It's not just us. There's a deliverable. Oh, then it's home media. And all of a sudden, you're cast across all these silos, and you have to be able to show how you can provide value for each of these silos to their needs. And if you show something that's constructed in its entirety, I think what you're doing is giving them reasons. And you know how that town is. They're always looking for a reason to stay in bed. So they're not going to go, I got it. So we took that startup mentality a little bit that we're scrappy, we'll wear it ourselves for a while. And we also took the disruptors mentality that uh, we're gonna get in between the silos, kick some doors open and build something that spreads across the floor. And hopefully people will see the Jenga pieces or puzzle pieces they need and pick them up. But at the same time, we have to show, we do have a construction, we do have a narrative through line You know, we do have all of those elements that would make them feel satisfied that, oh, there's a movie here. There's not just 200 hours of random footage that these stupid Canadians are going to try and sell us in a big wheelbarrow. Yeah, it really takes, I guess, maybe no two projects would be the same in that way. I would love to be able to say, hey, here's a movie, buy it. And then all our decisions were implemented but I feel like that's not being a good partner. So right now we're finding, I can't discuss the project in specific, but we have a project that's say 90%. I'll get a movie to 90%, get a rough assembly. And then we will be discussing with partners or possible partners. Here's what we have, here's what we can do. And I find they want to come in. They act like they wish they'd come in sooner, Like boy, we would love to have more creative control over this project. And the truth is, I think if you said to them, hey, do you want to make a movie on the turtles in advance? Where's a million dollars? They might go, hey, man, no way. So you know what I mean? There's this balancing act that you have to play. Yes, I want you to have creative input, but I know you don't want to have it at a time when you're taking on the, sort of the financial burden. I would love to do that. The way that we have worked with netflix we did a licensing with netflix with He man they just took it whole hog but with dark crystal it was more implemented from the beginning not the beginning of their production which was a year maybe even 18 months ahead of us or more we came in part way through but the beginning of our production aligned with their sort of strategic needs that they had articulated based on what I pitched and what they knew I was hoping to do.
0: Randall, I feel like there are so many questions I still have, but I want to make sure I get in this question.
1: For those writers who
0: are listening right now, if you had to choose one piece of advice, what would you suggest for those who are trying to get to where you are?
1: You know that old truism that people say that is not true, right? What you know? I don't agree with that. I flip it around. Try to know everything. I think if you're a writer right now, I don't know if you know any comic book writers. I do not really. I've met some. You find the ones who are the best, they know a lot. They read a lot. They know a lot. You read Ed Brubaker and you know shit. Ed Brubaker isn't just writing a comic book, he's creating a world. Context and pattern. You have to bring all this material in together. I've never sold a feature. I was writing a feature at Disney and it was fraught with turmoil the year that it happened was a crazy year but what i learned through that is you have to have a very big i don't know what you'd call it a huge context behind you so that the writing it may be the head of a pin but you have this giant world behind you that you're drawing from same for the docs same for everything what you see on the page is this tiny tiny little extrusion from this giant whatever it is this universe this mental world that you've created so my thought would be for filmmakers and writers just keep filling yourself filling your brain keep soaking it all up be strategic and think about all the things at the same time and just let that come up if you try to steer it too much what you'll do is The checkbox interview. You'll do the checkbox movie. You'll just try to put the thing that you already know on the page or on the screen. And I don't think that's the best way to do it. I think you have to sort of be in a place of flow. We never talked about this, but our whole team are very much into flow. What does it feel like? Where is it? We have this giant resource. We've done all the work. We've done all the thinking, and now we're just letting something happen out of that giant amount of work. There you go.
0: Randall, did you want to plug anything, any upcoming projects, your Twitter handle, anything people can kind of look for uh, after listening?
1: <laughs> I'm trying to not do too much social media right now. I'm trying to stay super positive and say, stay the fuck home. I drove across America. I saw people who laughed, who thought it was funny, who did stuff like licking the toilets, even, you know, all that insane shit that people are doing. Right now, the main thing we have to do. Is band together to stay apart. So at our Baywatch documentary, we're doing this be a lifeguard, save lives, and stay home. If you want to see me, come and talk to me. I'm at the lab coat guy on Twitter. We're Definitive Film on Facebook. You can find me out there. I'm happy to talk to people and I'm happy to share my monologue (laughs) with whomever wants to listen.
0: (laughs) Well, we appreciate it, Randall. Thank you so much for your insights and your time. I feel like we just really touched the uh, tip of the iceberg on this one. So maybe we'll have to have you back on to talk even more about your upcoming documentaries and how it's all changing. Thank you again. And thanks to our listeners. We hope to see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to The Writer Experience. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a rating, a review, and a comment on iTunes. You can also check us out on instagram at writer experience and twitter and facebook at writer exp the writer experience is a samurai dinosaur production copyright 2019 all rights reserved music by kevin mcleod